Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Et mitzvat let me Friends, one more time. Behold, I accept upon myself the mitzvah of my creator to love others as I love myself. Friends, I give you the bracha, and I hope you'll give it back to me that you feel love for yourself and that you channel that love for yourself towards those around you each day, each moment, and that in our learning space together, we can feel that. We can feel that together. So debate number 22, we've made it. Hi, everyone. Nice to see you. Auschwitz versus Sinai, which is the more central Jewish narrative today? Friends, today Jews have two primary frameworks for developing their Jewish identity, disempowered victim and empowered responsible agent. Of course, one can hold both narratives, but for, the, for most, we find that one identity is more dominant. For some Jews today, the Holocaust is the most central memory, actual or vicarious fostering their identity. For other Jews, Sinai is the most central narrative, often articulated as a kind of memory, zahor, within which to develop identity. One chooses to use their energy to call upon others to remember, or one uses their energy to engage in and promote religion. And the two are not necessarily exclusive, of course. We therefore need not debate who is right, Rather, we merely need to understand the complexity. To be sure, identifying the Holocaust as the central Jewish historical event can lead one to be either a particularist or a universalist. One could invoke never again solely as a slogan for security within the Jewish community alone. Alternatively, one could also invoke the slogan as a, as a call to combat genocide in Africa. Recall Elie Wiesel's words from his 1986 Nobel Peace 
Nobel Prize acceptance speech in which he explicitly connected his memories to his activism. I remember, Wiesel said, it happened yesterday or eternities ago. That is why I swore never to be silent whenever and wherever human beings endure suffering and humiliation. The 20th century philosopher, Emil Fackenheim, connected the, the decimation of the Jewish people in the 1930s and 40s to a religious narrative. He argued that after Auschwitz, there is now a 614th biblical commandment working to maintain the continuity of the Jewish people. Rabbi Yehuda Amital also argued for a new religious mandate based on our collective memory of mid-20th century reality as experienced directly by European Jewry and less directly by other residents of the Jewish world. He said in Auschwitz, they did not check people's tzitzit before sending them to the gas chambers. Should we check tzitzit before regarding someone as a brother? For Rev Amital, fundamental to the Jewish ethos is the adamant resistance against judging another's religious truth itself judging another's religious worldview and practice. Rabbi Yitz Greenberg went one step further, arguing that the shift suggested by contemplation of the Holocaust is not only in the behavioral tolerance realm, but even deeper in our understanding of religious truth itself. He wrote, we are told that the path back to Eden is barred by the blade of an ever-turning fiery sword. Is it too poetic after Auschwitz to see in this image a hint of being thrust into a world illuminated by the flames of the Shoah in which all existence and all claims must be viewed with clear-eyed sober realism exposed in all their limits. In the flawed, finite, wounded world that we inhabit, error and limits are incorporated in the essence of the truth. Recognition of this concept is the key to respecting other people. Constructive channeling of this insight can prevent the destructive floods that flowed forth from past absolutisms. The only way to wholeness is to heal the world and to work to take the poison out of absolutism without eroding all values and truth in the process. Post-Shoah, the yearning for perfecting finitude, properly harnessed can fuel the drive for tikkun olam, mending the world politically and economically, as well as religiously and philosophically. In the interim, we must, we must tend to our modest gardens of truth and learn to understand faith and conviction in a new light. So the statement, all truths are moment, moment truths, is both a substantive and a methodological dictum. At the least, in the aftermath of the Shoah, all truth claims are suspect and need to be re-examined especially if they carry the potential to harm others. At the most, the principle leads us to de-absolutize and reduce all our truth claims. In the course of becoming more modest, cultures will become more competent and many past dichotomies will become future continuums. Wow. So the narratives connect. The Shoah shakes our notion of truth and shakes our notion of religious philosophy. So while some have invoked the Shoah to deepen our faith in the miraculous within what would otherwise present itself as a dark and gloomy world, 
others, even religious teachers, have invoked the Shoah to challenge our faith. Here's how Telushkin quoted it. In a similar vein, I once heard the late theologian Rabbi Eliezer Berkowitz suggest that on Yom HaShoah, Jews should gather in shul and say nothing. They should say nothing at all. While most Jews feel it inappropriate on Yom HaShoah to recite Kaddish, in honor of the six million, Berkovitz reasoned that since the Kaddish is a prayer that praises God, it is more appropriate to offer no prayer at all. Such silence constituted a form of protest against God for not using his power to stop the Holocaust. Consider, on the other hand, a deepening of faith based on the notion that God promised early on that there would be curses and there would be blessings. Rabbi Shlomo Riskin often tells a particular story to show this approach. He was praying at the Klosenberger Rebbe's shul. The Rebbe had lost his wife and 13 children in the Shoah. He was one of the last to leave Europe as he told people that a captain does not leave a sinking ship before the passengers. He eventually got out. And on the Shabbos morning that Rabbi Riskin came to pray, something unusual happened. When the Torah reader came to the passage of the Tokacha, of the rebuke, or the curses that would befall the Jewish people in the future due to our straying from the Torah and trying to read those verses quickly and quietly, as is the custom. The Rebbe said only one word, Hacher, Hacher, louder, louder, don't say it quietly. The Torah reader was confused that the Rebbe would go against tradition and decided to proceed even quickly, more quickly and even quieter, assuming he had heard wrong. But the Rebbe around the congregation with his eyes blazing and banged on the lectern. If, if, I said louder. He shouted over and over, let the master of the universe hear this. We have nothing to be afraid of. We have already received all the curses and more. Let the almighty hear and let him understand that the time has come to send the blessings now. Rabbi Riskin was trembling. Other congregants quietly sobbed. The Torah reader then read the verses loudly and slowly. And at the end of the services, the Rebbe turned back to the congregation with deep love in his eyes. My beloved sisters and brothers, the blessings will come, but not from America. God has promised the blessings after the curses, but they will only come from the land of Israel. Let us pack our bags for the last time. And soon after that Shabbos, the Rebbe led his congregation to Israel, where they settled in Netanya. Friends, by viewing the tragedy of the Shoah as a defining narrative of the Jewish identity is far from the only way to think about what it means to identify as a Jew in the 21st century. We can also think about what it means to be a Jew by imagining ourselves experiencing divine instruction as to how to live our life as a Jew, as described in the narrative of the Sinaitic revelation. And we might ask what the relationship is between a revelation consciousness and a tragedy consciousness. We can contemplate the linguistic and the phonetic similarity between the name Sinai, the place of revelation, and the word Sina, hate. At Sinai, we were charged to be a voice of conscience in the world. But such a role, lofty as it is, can indeed inspire hate from others. How popular is it to be the source of moral critique regarding the evils of our day? 
How loved were the biblical prophets who also served as social critics in their time? Rabbi Sachs wrote about the primacy of the Sinaitic experience for all the communal and moral significance emerging from that moment. He wrote, at Sinai, they acquired Cherut, their constitution of liberty as a nation. It was then that they discovered that God reveals himself in the form of laws. For only the rule of law creates the possibility of a society on which my freedom respects yours. Law, a law that treats everyone equally, rich and poor, native born and stranger, is the institutional embodiment of collective as opposed to individual freedom. At Sinai, the Israelites were transformed from a community of faith into a community of faith, from an Am to an Adel, meaning a body politic under the sovereignty of God, whose written constitution was Torah. At that moment, the fundamental truth was established that a free society must be a moral society. For without the rule of law, constrained by the overarching imperatives of the right and the good, freedom will eventually, eventually degenerate into tyranny and liberty painfully won will be lost. Freedom, friends, is a, is a low bar to strive for, a very low bar to strive for if we don't also fight for the good that accompanies the freedom. Given its historical or at least imagined placement as the formative moment of Jewish peoplehood and perhaps of Jewish religion, one might suggest that all future events could be understood within the framework of Sinai or that any defining event is included retroactively in the Sinai experience. A famous Talmudic passage from Menachot 29b illustrates how Moshe was terrified upon prophesying that Rabbi Akiva would teach Jewish law that he himself didn't understand. What? This is, this is crazy. Moshe says, let me see the future generations. I want to know that this Torah is going to survive. And he sees Rabbi Akiva teaching Torah min, Torah Messinai. And Moshe says, I've never heard this. How could this be Torah from Sinai? I was the one there. But Moshe was comforted when he heard Rabbi Akiva state that his teaching was also revealed to Moshe at Sinai. A revelatory process was put into place, producing new results to new generations that previous generations could never have even fathomed. And this enduring connection was solace to the initial recipient of the Torah. This notion that progress was itself built into Sinai. Rob Cook explains that embracing Sinai as central does not leave it as a mere historical experience. He says the bracha recited before studying Torah concludes with the words, who gives the Torah? In the present tense, right? Notain Torah. Though the Torah was given on Mount Sinai 3,000 years ago, in reality, God is constantly giving the Torah anew. In every age, the Torah flows constantly within the interior of the soul. Friend, think about that next time you get an aliyah to the Torah, that you are saying this in the present. God did not give the Torah. God gives the Torah. The revelation happens now. Torah is alive. That's why we call it Torah Chayim from an Elohim Chaim, a living God giving a living Torah. And each of us is empowered as an interpreter, as a messenger, as a prophetic holder, passing Torah onto the next generation. Because no one in the past could have known you and could have known this moment and could have known this challenge. Only we do 
and the Torah is revealed to this moment. Sinai involves ongoing revelation. And so new meaning making continues to emerge from the revelation experience for any Jew immersed within a spiritual consciousness. From a rationalist or perhaps existentialist perspective, Rabbi Soloveitchik shows how embracing tradition in our times can emerge from an intellectual place. He writes in Halachic Nehem, he does not search out transcendental ecstatic paroxysms or frenzied experiences that whisper intonations of another world into his ears. He does not acquire any miracles or wonder in order to understand the Torah. He approaches the world of halakha with his mind and intellect, just as cognitive man approaches the natural realm. And since he relies upon his intellect, he places his faith in it and does not suppress any of his psychic faculties in order to merge into some supernal existence. His own personal understanding can resolve the most difficult and complex problems. He pays no heed to any murmurings of emotional intuition or other types of mysterious presentiments. We know today from Pew studies that along with the development of an increasingly secular American Jewish people, the narrative of Auschwitz has taken precedence over the narrative of Sinai. In some respects, at least, this is not surprising. Auschwitz is a, is a provable event and it's recent in history. Sinai is not provable, and to the extent it can be viewed as historical, it occurred over 3,000 years ago. Also, the story of Auschwitz intersects with American Jewish political identity, whereas religious identities are in some ways less and less re relevant in the public discourse. Consider a clash between the two narratives <coughs> in the context of the contemporary state of Israel. In considering the rules of immigration, the state of Israel decided that the Holocaust would be more central than Sinai in the question, who is a Jew? To be a Jew for the purposes of the law of return, the law that allows any Jew to become a citizen of Israel with no waiting period. A strict Sinai view is not embraced. Rather, the Holocaust view is embraced. Anyone whom Hitler considered a Jew is a Jew for immigration purposes. That is, anyone with one Jewish grandparent may become entitled to immediate citizenship. For other purposes, however, the secular state gives the chief rabbinate, which is currently controlled by the ultra-Orthodox leadership, the decision to who is a Jew. Friends, to conclude here, it is completely understandable for personal and collective reasons why one would make the Holocaust the most central part of one's identity. It is also completely understandable why one would include the Holocaust as only one among many Jewish historical experiences within the broader Sinai narrative. It also makes sense why one would embrace both but keep them separate, i.e. suggesting that we have no religious tools from Sinai to make any meaning of such a tragic event as the Holocaust. Each Jew is charged with the imperative to find the Jewish path that works for them. We are obliged to find the path that allows each of us to grow and to contribute to society in the most productive fashion. Okay, friends, Sinai versus Auschwitz, I would love to hear from you.
I think it's really tricky. Um, one of the things that resonated most with me, and then I think it has to do with the whole political situation too, is that the Shoah has shaken our notion of truth. And you know, it's very easy to see why things are the way they are now, because if you say something enough, like in in you know in the in the days of the Holocaust, the days of Nazi Germany, people come to believe it. So you know, we I mean, and that that can go back to Sinai too. I mean, and and that those two things, like you said at the end, are not the only two things to weigh. I mean, I think it all depends on where you're coming from. Suppose you were locked in the, you know, a Jew in Soviet Russia. And, you know, so that might be your focus of identity and who you are, you know, if, if you've emerged from that and what kind of history and memory that, that serves you. So I just think it's tricky because I don't want future generations to just focus on the downside, which is, you know, the Holocaust and all of that that happened and make it like you said, the, the, the victims. I don't want that to be our, our lesson, our lesson that we pass on to our, the next generations. You know, this is what happened to the Jews. So this is why we have to do A, B and C. That's not the reason. And I also loved the fact that you said about no tame Torah because that uh, I, I, I read the Torah a lot. so. I, I, I'm going to think of it in a new way now. So thank you. Awesome, Cheryl. You should read the Torah for a long time in good health and strength, inspiring your community and all of us. Thank you for that. And, uh, and I hear what you're saying. You're exactly right. Like, number one, there are so many other experiences. Sephardic Jews did not go through the Holocaust. Um, many Sephardic Jews had their own expulsions by Arab countries. Um, and their own periods of golden ages and the opposite. Like you said, the Soviet Jews had their own uh, uh, different experience. I was just thinking yesterday about, and I was thinking about this in terms of activism. Roosevelt, Roosevelt chose to partner closely with Joseph Stalin. St Joseph Stalin is like one of the most evil men who ever walked on the earth. But he said, I'm gonna partner with Stalin because the Soviets will put millions more soldiers into place than the Brits and the Americans ever will, right? And so the greatest evil is Hitler. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna partner with the second greatest evil on the planet in order to defeat the number one evil, right? And why not, what a radical thing. Because you might've said, geez, we don't partner with evil. We're America the great. When I, and you know what would have happened? If we hadn't partnered with the Soviets, most likely Hitler would have overtaken, you know, overtaken Europe you know, if, if we hadn't done that. And so I think about that, about moral purity and political strategies and allegiances. In any case, that was that, that was just triggered a little bit. Um, and then as soon, of course, as soon as it was clear that the Soviets had overrun the Germans, uh, now, then the Americans realized they had a problem because Stalin now started taking over all of East Europe and they realized they had empowered someone who was now gonna create a whole new problem. Thank God that whole thing seemed to have worked out. <laughs> Decades later, so it seems. <laughs> so in any case, you know, history is a funny thing that you can kind of look back at it. Um, in any case, you're right that Sephardic Jews, Soviet Jews, uh, different Jews who don't even have the Shoah as central to their narrative. And then we have the educational pedagogical problem. How do we, how do we keep this on the radar of our, um, of our children um, and yet not have it dominate. 
And why does it dominate? You know, is, is another question. You know, I, I mean, I, I, I have to share on a personal level that two nights ago, and, and I try not to share my dreams, uh, mainly because I believe in the power of dreams. So I, I invite no one to try to interpret my dream with, with if you'll honor that request. But two nights ago, I had the most vivid and emotional concentration camp nightmare that I've ever had in my life two nights ago, where I um, was mamish inside this camp. And maybe some of you have had those your whole life. Maybe you've never had that. Uh, but it was, it was incredibly strange why it was coming to me at this time of my life, why it happened at this moment. And I was thinking about how to, how to make use of this and how to interpret this um, in terms of my work in the world. And um, we can't lose that because it is such a source of the Jewish people's uh, work to be a people of conscience today, a voice of conscience, um, a moral voice against genocide and oppression. We can't lose that. And yet, what happens when we are trauma-driven and we are fear-driven? How does that uh, also affect our moral compass and our religious worldview? So we can't be naive about history, but we can't be dominated by it also. Okay, so Cheryl, thank you for those, those points. Um, thank you for that. Um, Rabbi? I think this is uh, another angle and a fundamental debate in Israel and who Israel is right now. Is it is the secular versus the uh, the Haredim? Because you know, it, it, we say, you know, by one definition you become a citizen of Israel, but by that definition you can't get married in Israel. You can't, you know, and and I think this is this kind of debate still variation of it going going through Israel in this secular um Haredim split and, and and who are we as a state of Israel who are we as a Jewish state what does that mean and I think that impacts how we deal with our uh, our Arab citizens and it, it just has ramifications all the way through okay so that's very interesting that's very interesting. So thank you for that. And I think we, if we go even further with this idea that Mike's bringing up here, why are we in Israel at all? Why are we in Israel? And the dominant secular answer is the Holocaust. The dominant secular reason for Israel is we need a place of refuge. The dominant religious answer is the actualization of Torah. If you are a religious Jew, and I mean that in the broadest sense, generally the idea is we are in Israel because this is Torah. We have more mitzvot we can do here. We can actualize our destiny here. And if we are not Torah inspired and we are history driven, and again, it is a little bit of a false binary, but it works in most cases. We are primarily in Israel as a, as a refuge from, um, from the world. And so that's another case where that plays out. And as Mike pointed out also this question of, who is a Jew, and this question of how we relate to Arab, Arab um, uh, neighbors. If the Holocaust is about Jewish security, then we should be as tough as we possibly can with neighbors and not let anyone pose any threat to us ever again. If the Holocaust is a lesson in brutality, then yes, we may be very concerned about Jewish security, but we also need to check our pulse um, and, and our own actions to make sure that we are never 
in any ways guilty of such brutality. Eric. Hi, thank you. Um, uh, sorry, I, I had a unstable internet connection. Um, I did have a question. I'm not sure if this was discussed when I was off uh, offline for a brief moment. Um, I, I liked the citations you gave about Sinai versus Holocaust. Uh, you cited, um, I think it was Rabbi Greenberg, about an example of instead of going the, on Yohom Shoah, instead of doing the mourner's Kaddish, it'd be the, pro, the protest would be to not say any prayers at all. Now, I thought that you gave a great example on that because it, as Jews, what we sent to say what is more important and what is more centralized Sinai or Holocaust is how Jews apply. How do we apply the lessons learned of both events to, um, to our faiths? But one thing that is just important is not about its application, but also how do we protest? Uh, the lessons learned. And you gave an example, and just the Yom HaShoah was a good one. And I thought of Sinai would be one is where we don't like, you have Jews that choose not to follow all the commandments or they don't agree to the covenant. My, my, my question is, what, pro, what have you seen as protests in the Jewish community that indicates that maybe the Holocaust or the Sinai could be more centralized? Uh, I wanna understand your question better. I think I do. But what have, what have we seen as protests as, as to, uh, in regards one to the other as to which is more central? Is that the question? Yes, because it's not just how you implement, but okay. choose the rejection and protest to be just as equally oh, as important. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, great. Excellent. Excellent. So I think the first one is a peoplehood Jew, a peoplehood Jew says, how dare you Orthodox people tell me I'm not a Jew my family was also in the Holocaust, right? So imagine that, that case. Someone says, I'm, I'm guided by halakha and the halakhic definition for thousands of years as to who's a Jew. And someone else says, how dare you say, I'm a Russian, I'm a secular Russian Israeli soldier. How dare you tell me I'm not a Jew? Or I am a um, American Jew of, of uh, paternal descent. Um, how, you know, and my father's, father was a, a survivor. How dare you tell me I'm not a Jew? And so there's the peoplehood, um, liberal peoplehood argument against the halachic argument. And one says, nope, the Shoah is more central. My family was there too. How dare you exclude me? And the other says, nope, Sinai is more central. Right? Our rabbinic tradition, as we understand it, has rules and laws and says this and that. And we can understand both sides. We can, we can truly understand what both sides are saying. Uh, in that in that case, um, you know, regardless of where we where we land on that, and then you know, on the other side of it, I think um, also here's here's a good example. You probably didn't know this, but many of you, but did you know that the Orthodox, by and large, do not embrace Holocaust Remembrance Day? Now, not so many people embrace Holocaust Remembrance Day, anyways. Yes, in Israel, there's a siren. In America, maybe you make a Facebook post, or the president puts out a statement, or something. You know, maybe in the school, they say something if it's a school that engages Holocaust education. But the religious, the, 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 the religious community within Orthodoxy moved the Holocaust into Tisha B'Av. Tisha B'Av needs to include that. This is not something that we don't create some new commemoration date. It is in line with that past history. 
And so that's another case where they say that the, that the religious frameworks that existed come to include the Shoah rather than the Shoah change the way we operate. Um, so I, and so they even protested the founding of a, of a, of a Holocaust Remembrance Day, in a sense. Um, so I think those are my first examples I would come to. I, I'm sure as we keep talking here, some others will come to me as well. But what a great question. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Yehuda. Where are you at today, Yehuda? Well, I, I agree with Cheryl. This is so complicated. <laughs> and, uh, and I like what you just were saying, because I think that, uh, yeah, it's a part of history, the Holocaust, that needs to be included and part of how we update, how we're thinking about things. But I go back to Sinai as the foundation. And so, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's where I'm at. <laughs> yeah, awesome, thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, you know, it, it really is. Um, now I wanna be clear that what I'm not heard is making light of either side of this debate. I am in no way making light of the importance of, God forbid, of Holocaust memory or honoring survivors or combating the evils that emerges, emerges from that. Nor am I making light of someone who it's so central for them because of how personal it is for them or how um, meaningful that memory is to them. Nor am I making light on the other side of those who give it a more minimal role and view religion as the primary framework. I think this is all really complex and heavy. And what I think we can do is be more intentional as to why we have shaped our identity the way we have and why we allow which historical events to dominate that identity and values today. And to be sure that it's not just fear-driven, but values-driven. Because the Jewish people has experienced enough trauma over the millennia that um, it is very easy to slide into a place where our community is led from a from a fear-based mentality rather than a values-based mentality. Maybe another way of asking it, Rabbi, are we a Jewish people or are we people who share a Jewish faith? Yeah. Right. Yeah, what a profound question. What a profound question, right. Um, uh, and certainly you can say yes and yes, and yet, which one do we believe is more true? Maybe that should have been the poll question, right? Um, are we primarily a people or are we primarily individuals who share the same faith? Um, and yet what actually is that faith be, given all the history of debate is also itself complex. But if we put a sentence down, we could all more or less agree with as to what Judaism is fundamentally about, right? What happens with, um, other peoples who embrace that same doctrine, right? So do I embrace a Jew? Now fill in the blank of who the opposite Jew is for you. If you're more or less secular, think of the most religious Jew. If you're very religious, think of the most secular Jew, right? Think of a Jew that you would think of as the most opposite of you in some sense. Is that person a part of the same community as you, right? Um, and 
for some, they would say, yep, peoplehood really outweighs whatever we believe. And for others, they would say peoplehood, like who cares, right? I'm a values-driven person. I'm a faith-driven person. Anyone who is in my camp is who I'm going to engage with. Now, it might sound like the latter is more narrow, but actually the latter is also the camp that says intermarriage is a good thing. It's the camp that says open our tents to anyone who wants to come in. I don't care if you're Jewish or Christian or atheist. Anyone who wants to participate in these ideas is welcome because we're not a people. We're people of ideas. That's also the ultra-Orthodox to some degree, who are less interested in peoplehood, but are interested in those committed to the idea. And so both this kind of radical, inclusive, liberal approach and this most traditional approach find themselves in this, the ideas realm, whereas the peoplehood realm, that says it's less about ideas, it's more about this people, finds itself in a predicament, finds itself in a predicament. Because, well, what is this people ultimately about? Like, why am I preserving this people? Is it just history? Is it just memory? If it's not values driven, then what is this ultimately about? Yes, Della. Hi, Della. Hi, sorry, <laughs> my video never works. Um, yeah, and this is where it gets really complicated because, you know, Jews of the United States have a different experience than the ones in, you know, the Middle East. We talked about this so many times, or in Africa, and and when we kind of talk about who's who's a Jew. Um, I'm kind of think of my own family that in 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 an, like a Muslim country where discriminated because it wasn't just because of their religion, but it was more of like an ethnicity. Like this is the ethnic group that we collectively decide to ignore or even execute. And then the other one is that that they're still struggling. Like it's not something that happened like, you know, 60 years, <laughs> it happened like two years ago, you know, and they are still kind of like being profiled by the government. So I guess like, that's why it's really complicated because we live in this so-called bubble. So we have like a very limited experience while other people in different countries like African Jews in Ethiopia, they have a completely different experience than we do, right? So, so I, that's awesome, Della. So I think what Della's sharing here, at least partially, and tell me if I'm, I'm misinterpreting, is in some ways, this is why the ideas, the values of Judaism are in some ways more powerful than the, um, the individual and micro community experiences because the Jewish people is so spread out and so diverse that we don't have shared experiences, right? And because we don't have those, what unites us is not those shared experiences, even though we feel empathy and solidarity with Jews and different experiences, but it's precisely that covenant that we're, that binds us together, right? And so we can't pretend like, it's, we almost can't, this is part of the Sephardic Ashkenazic divide today, is because our narratives are so different and our attitude towards Gentiles and towards the world and towards history are so different given those experiences that um, uh, we, we don't share that, that we, don't, we, don't, we don't hold that shared language about our, our contemporary identity. Hey, Rabbi, how do we um, really bring this into our youth? who we see that don't really identify with the show as much um, as we also see that there's an issue with our schooling system and, and not really educating on the show. But as well, don't really have a tie to Israel as um, 
we see more American Jews have less and less of a tie to Israel. How do we still keep a sense of uh, Jewish identity with both of those things with our new generations? Okay, Eddie is asking the million dollar question. Thank you for that. Because in the 20th century, these were the two pieces that held together Jewish identity, right? Israel and the Holocaust. And every year since 1967, the American Jewish commitment to Israeli security has dropped. Every year. And every year, the connection to the Shoah becomes less profound, given less survivors in the world, less personal connection, more distance, right? And so what do we do? And so there's two different approaches here. One approach says double down, double down, more Holocaust education, more Israel education, more Israel experiences, more March of the Living, double down on experiencing the Holocaust and experiencing Israel. The other side says, no, we can't go back. Those two won't work. Those two are too far removed from the American Jewish youth. And so, yes, of course it has to be in there somewhere, but we need to reinvent American Jewish identity for young Jews. And what will we do that? And what the liberal Jews say, social justice. The liberal Jews say all they need is to feel like they are citizens of America, responsible. And I, and I disagree with that approach. I disagree with that approach. If social justice is the answer, then just go be a great American. Go be a great American. That doesn't make you a Jew, right? That is not enough. There needs to be Judaism in addition to citizenship and social justice responsibility. And the, and the traditional Jew says Torah, Torah. And I, did, and I think they're wrong too. I think they're wrong too, to think that um, it's not about citizenship. It is primarily about uh, parochialism or particularism. And I think the combination is the two. How does Torah come alive in this moment for us? And yes, that has a social justice component. Yes, that has a Torah learning component. Yes, that has a personal element and a, and a communal element, a national element. And so I think, and that's what VBM is all about, friends. How is Torah alive in this moment, right? It's not a, about the past. It's about, uh, it's not primarily about the past. It's not primarily about the future in some messianic sense. It is about this moment, about being alive. And that is, I think, one of the gifts of how Torah can, can revive young American Jewish commitment. Um, that we don't try to transport people to the past. We don't try to tell them a vision of the future. We allow them to experience the transformative power of Torah and how that can enhance their life on a personal level, a familial level, a communal level, an American level, and a global level. Yes, Cheryl. Okay, so uh, this is problematic <laughs> because if you read, if you read which the stories, just like this past week, Lech Lecha, for example, I mean, there are so many stories that are bad stories. They don't reflect well on the Jew, you know, the Jewish people, you know, the, the, the kicking out of Hagar, you know, that all of the, all of those stories. So to understand Torah in the broad sense, which I know that that's what you're saying. You're not saying in the actual literal sense, but I, you know, I, I just think it's problematic and you have to make sure that you, you know, teach, you learn from those lessons too. And no, sorry about the phone. Uh, you learn from those lessons too, that, um, of how to, how to, uh, you know, 
trans transform that those stories into being uh, for today for today and what they meant you know so anyway amazing amazing so cheryl has an amazing point just what do you mean torah is the answer like torah alive in this moment didn't you didn't you weren't you awake during the torah reading last week you know <laughs> cheryl says like what do you mean this is gonna guide us like what about hagar what about the binding of isaac and like look at all this stuff like what what do you mean this is the answer you know and so i, I so i'm overstating cheryl's case just because i love her <laughs> but but um uh but but it's, a, it's such a great question and i think there's a few different answers here one fundamentalist side says nope those aren't problems we're going to do away with those problems the torah is not there, there are no problems you're reading we need to embrace it as it's all it's all it's all perfect right the other side says oh the torah is garbage throw this thing away like this is immoral what is this torah the third side, the intellectual side that doesn't have a moral side says, oh, we can explain away the problems, right? So it acknowledges those problems, it reinterprets the problems, all good. But I think the type we're talking about is that says actually within those very problems are moral lessons, right? Those, those and just to use the case that Cheryl highlighted, Sarah and Abraham and their treatment of Hagar, right? And of Yishmael, right? To look at problems and say like, we should never be so self-righteous that we Jews are perfect, so self-righteous that any one of us is perfect, but rather we can look at our own tradition and be inspired by the heroism and be inspired by the moral failures. It's the same way we view our parents. Any one, every one of us, I'm sure, can look at our parents and see heroism and moral failures. And that's what it means to learn from your parents. You don't love them any less. Right, because of those things. I mean, some of those moral failures are so bad that maybe you do, right? But um, or not love them at all, right? But in, in many cases, what we're looking at here is a Torah that won't let us turn away from the problems. It won't let us look away from Sarah and Abraham the way they treat Hagar. It could have brushed it off. It could have brushed it off. It could have erased it. They said, no, no, don't look away. Every year, I want you to read that and think about that about how you yourself can be found in a situation where you're pushing people away, right? Where you're sending people away in such, in, such, in such a case. And so I think what I mean by Torah here is not that, oh, the Torah is perfect in a sense that it tells you exactly what to do just like our ancestors did. The Torah is perfect in that it doesn't let us turn away from the moral weight of what we have to encounter on a daily basis on a personal and collective level. Cheryl, thank you so much for pushing on that point. Okay, is there one more person who wants to jump in here? Okay, friends, with that, with that, I wish everyone a wonderful day. Um, I wish everyone a day where we can construct our Jewish identities in more and more profound and meaningful ways, not only because they're authentic to ourselves, but because to sustain the Jewish future, we're going to need a lot more tools than the ones we just inherited. We're going to need to be creative to think about how something so dynamic can be sustained in the next era. And I also want us to remember what the number one claim of the anti-Semite is today. Well, maybe not the number one, but one of them is those Jews claim to be the perpetual victim. That's what they say. The Jews claim to be the perpetual victim, and they use that victim victimhood status to gain more power and privilege. That's what they say. And, and, I, and I've heard it in certain um, 
in certain white supremacist circles, and I've heard it in minority circles, right? That, hey, first of all, these people aren't real minorities. These are white folks. How can they use their victimhood status? You'll hear that in minority circles. And then the white supremacist circle, you'll say the, the, this victimhood, they're at fault of, of all this stuff, right? They're at fault for all this. And so we see this claim around how American Jews understand our victimhood historically and how that's used as a political identity. And we can ask ourselves how that intersects with anti-Semitism and how that intersects with our own sense of victimhood as a, as a historical truth and victimhood as a, um, as a political weight. No easy answers today. Wishing everyone a beautiful and powerful day. And I hope you will join us for debate number 23. Not only because I love seeing you all and I love thinking with you all, but also because debate number 23 is a social justice question. Are we most responsible to the most vulnerable or are we to be fair to all people regardless of their vulnerability? Have a wonderful day. See you soon. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.